Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Michael Forsyth. Michael, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for being here. I read your book. Actually, I read your articles, then read your book, When McKinsey Comes to Town. And as a, I got my MBA at Columbia and a lot of people there. Actually, when I went there, I had never heard of McKinsey. And a lot of people were talking about how they wanted to work there and BCG and Bain. And I'd heard of the finance places, but not I didn't even know that consulting existed. And then suddenly I was being recruited and lots of people I know came from there and then went there afterward. And then I started thinking everyone knew about it. But then when I talked to people before and since reading your book, it reminded me of how many people have not heard of it. And I don't know if you'd call the book and your articles exposés, but I wonder if you could describe your background and Walt's background and uh, your co-author and how you decided to write this and then maybe what it's a high-level overview to start off. Sure. So Walt and I are both investigative journalists at the New York Times. Walt, far more illustrious than I. He's won three Pulitzer Prizes and is really a legend, I think, in journalistic circles in the United States. And all credit to him. This was his idea to start working on the book. He had been looking at inequality in America, rising inequality ahead of the 2016 elections and thinking that, you know, this increasing inequality was part of the reason that Trumpism was so popular in the run-up and in the aftermath to that election. And he wanted to try to get at the root causes of that. And one of the things he discovered was the influence of McKinsey. It took a while to get the editors at the Times excited, but when they did, and uh, he had brought me in because he realized he needed a partner to pull this off, that uh, you know, we realized, and, and our first article was actually published in 2018. And so this was a series of articles, one after the other, that eventually led to a book, you know, kind of a common flight path for a journalist's book. And we were very lucky that the Times published a lot of our stories. And we were very surprised at the readership. There was an incredible amount of interest. Our first article was about McKinsey in South Africa, but it also served as an introduction to McKinsey for a lot of readers. And, and it just got incredible readership. I think the enthusiasm and the interest spurred us to do more stories. And a lot of our early reporting focused on McKinsey outside of the United States, but that all changed in 2019 with the realization that McKinsey was working so close with opioid makers in the United States. Oh, man. I'm just thinking of the chapters in the book that you refer to. And the South Africa stuff is just, it's mind-bending and it's shocking. And the opioid stuff is, I think a lot of people know about that. And it really punches you in the gut of this stuff going on. I think you were in the Navy, right? Because there's a the part about the South China Sea that's right. So I think Walt and I both brought some very unique life experiences to this book. In the introduction to the book, we talk about McKinsey's time at U.S. Steel in Gary, Indiana. And Walt actually worked at that steel mill. He's from Gary. He worked there. His father worked there in the mill itself. So he was able to describe in very personal terms the impact of McKinsey at that very famous steel mill. And then for me, yeah, before I was a journalist, I was a Navy officer and I was in the 7th Fleet, the U.S. Navy 7th Fleet, which is in the Western Pacific. 
I spent a lot of time in the South China Sea. And so when we were writing the chapter about China and McKinsey, and there's a very strong tie there to the South China Sea, I was kind of able to draw on some of my own experiences. Was that a punch in the gut for you to know that the company that you're defending is also working with a nation that's dramatically changing the balance of power? And how did that feel for you? Yeah. So when I was in the Navy, those islands in the South China Sea were just, you know, a twinkle in Deng Xiaoping's eyes. They were not a reality. I had no idea, no possible comprehension that would become a reality someday. I didn't really know about McKinsey at all until ironically, three years later, when I went to China for the first time and I was studying Chinese and uh, there were some people from McKinsey who were on their way to McKinsey in Beijing who were studying Chinese with me in Beijing. And that's when, that was my introduction to McKinsey. But there is a gut punch there. It's, but I think it's more cerebral than a gut punch, maybe a, a blow to the head, because it's just is very illustrative of the global reach of McKinsey and the fact that they're recruiting these incredibly bright people from around the world. And oftentimes the interests of the firm, i.e. making a lot of money, are really in conflict with some core values of the country from whence McKinsey sprang, which is the United States. They were founded in Chicago in 1926. And the idea that McKinsey's advising a company building these artificial islands in the South China Sea, while at the same time advising the Pentagon, who you know, is writing paper after paper about how these islands are a huge strategic challenge for the United States is mind-blowing. And it shows you just the, the massive global reach of McKinsey. They really are everywhere. In fact, the German title for our German chapter, which is only available in the German edition, and I'm going to butcher the German here because I don't speak it, but it's McKinsey is überall, which is McKinsey is everywhere. And I think that's why we wrote the book, right? They are absolutely everywhere working for all the big companies in the world, almost all of them, democracies, autocracies, governments around the world, nonprofits even, and their influence is enormous. And that, that's why we thought this book was worthwhile. A big theme of the book is, okay, they're everywhere. They're very influential. And to the extent that people know about them, I think people, would it be fair to say a sterling reputation, perhaps less so after your articles and books, but they have this reputation, but they also do the stuff that seems duplicitous. I mean, working for both sides at the same time, working for the Sacklers and the FDA. And they've been able to cultivate this amazing reputation despite what's going on. Part of it is secretness. And I think a big reason for your investigations is to shine a light on something that is not out there. But was that surprising to you how they were able to pull off such a reputation while it looks like it's not that, and that the people within the company still feel that way? So I do think we live in a different time now. I think journalists and just people in general are much more critical of these big corporations. And I never used this word in vain before I wrote this book. And I still feel kind of goofy using this word in vain, because I always thought people who use this word in vain were a bit, I don't know, as the British would say, a bit wet. But it's neoliberalism and the idea that companies and the market can solve society's issues, the, the just strong faith in that, that the free market and markets 
are really the way, you know, to advance society. And of course, that's a little bit true, of course, but it kind of went into extremes. And so this is a long-winded way of answering your question, I think, that I think for many decades, they just weren't questioned that much. From time to time, they were. You know, when the Enron scandal exploded and when Enron declared bankruptcy, there was some scrutiny of McKinsey at the time because McKinsey's, the, Jeffrey Skilling, the head of Enron, was a former McKinsey senior partner. McKinsey was in the boardroom. You know, they were everywhere at Enron. And so there was a, a little bit of hemming and hawing then. You know, every once in a while, they would be in the headlines, but it was really rare. And they really weren't looked at with an extremely critical eye, generally. I think things are different now. I think with the rise of inequality, with the authoritarian challenge that we have, you know, I think the role of U.S. companies is getting a little more scrutiny. That might be a little naive of me to say, but it's certainly, I feel it as an investigative journalist that... Uh, that we are in a different world than even we were 10 years ago. And so maybe McKinsey got somewhat of a pass before, and they aren't now. Maybe also it's just a function of, of McKinsey itself getting so big that one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. And sometimes that leads to real problems. Maybe it's a function of the fact that they pay their partners and senior partners so much money now because my God, their roommates at Harvard or Yale, they're investment bankers at Goldman making $10 million a year. By golly, they have to as well. So anyway, because they need to feed the beast to pay those salaries, they may have taken on some assignments, they call them engagements, that were ethically a bit challenged. And we wrote about that. Well, you talked about their reputation with the outside world. There's also the internal reputation because there's so many visionaries, yes, but also you know, people who want to change the world. That's a bit, I mean, that was definitely what they recruited me with. And I didn't work there, but I interviewed there, which is an interesting story. And they, so there's a lot of people who want to reduce greenhouse emissions. They want to, I'm thinking of China, have less of a surveillance state. And yet, the firm where they're working is doing something different. What, internally, was there, you mentioned some, to some extent, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing and the partners do seem to be very decentralized. And so there's no like single McKinsey doing stuff. But how did they resolve the internal conflict within the firm and also within probably individuals themselves? Yeah, very good question. I have to backtrack a little bit, just rewind a bit and say that their recruiting process is legendary. You know, the way they get people who otherwise might go to be Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan is to appeal to their idealism and say, and McKinsey, you can really make a difference in the world. You're not going to just be stuck at some cubicle on Wall Street buying and selling derivatives. You're going to be maybe, and this is a pitch they use, you know, helping, we do work like uh, we, McKinsey, who does work like uh, helping to introduce polio vaccines in Nigeria. You know, we do work on sustainability. We do all these things that you can come here and really make an impact on the world, something that you would not be able to do at an investment bank. And it is a very strong appeal. They, during their tests that they have, you know, they, they sometimes have scenarios where, you know, you're supposed to be working on protecting the environment, protecting ecosystems. So that does have a strong appeal to people. And also what has a strong appeal to people is the name of McKinsey. 
it's a prestigious name, just as prestigious as the Ivy Leagues or Oxbridge universities where so many of their young associates come from. And I think they want to uh, go to a place of work just as prestigious as the school that they graduated from. And so that kind of attracts people. So, so to get to your question, how do they square the circle? How do they resolve these contradictions? I think the jury's still out on that. And a lot of times they can't do that. And a lot of times these very idealistic, brilliant people that they so successfully recruit into the firm, and they call it the firm, that's the name inside the company as well, when they get there and they realize sometimes they're doing work that goes against their own values, maybe working with a coal mining company, for example, or an oil refiner, or God forbid, an authoritarian state, or a tobacco company until recently, that that does bother them. It could affect their performance. They might leave you know, McKinsey. And we're so lucky that many of these people who are incredibly idealistic and intelligent came to us and shared their experiences with us for the book. In all, we talked to more than 100 current and former McKinsey employees to put together this book. Your chapter on the environment, turning coal into a diamond, I could pick any chapter. And I'm kind of curious how you ordered it because at first I was trying to think of what order you were going in. In any case, this chapter was punch in the gut after punch in the gut. I don't want to sound repetitive. But it starts off with these presentations in which top McKinsey people are clearly describing the problem. They know very well the problem. And then a bunch of the chapter is them contributing to it, exact, well, other parts of the company, knowing what they're doing. And I wonder if you could describe that. What was like what they know and what they do with regard to greenhouse emissions? Yeah. And this is certainly an example maybe of the fact that McKinsey so, is such a leviathan and uh, one arm is not really influencing or having communicating too much with the other arm. So you do have these, you know, people at McKinsey, and we highlight this guy uh, speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Colorado in 2019, a guy named Dickon Pinner, and he's a senior partner at McKinsey. And he, he gives a very cogent presentation about carbon emissions and, and looks at it historically going back 300,000 years or more, showing how it was, a, it was quite a presentation, just showing how it was only in recent history that carbon levels got to the point that they stabilized. And when they stabilized 10,000, 20,000 years ago, this was the flowering of human civilization. And it was that climate stability that we've had over the last 2,000 years that has gone hand in in glove with the rise of civilization. And then you see the chart in the last few decades completely go off kilter, going back to the bad old days when CO2 levels were massively varying. And it was a very sobering speech. And he did this because McKinsey's one of the things they're very good at is analyzing data and presenting it, typically with a PowerPoint presentation, to people to convince them. And he was very convincing. And yet, the roots of the problem were at the Aspen Ideas Festival. This is a place where, you know, all the corporate swells from America go. ExxonMobil was there talking about carbon capture and storage, which they've been talking about for the last 10 years or more. It's all talk and not a lot of real action. And we cite a former McKinsey guy 
who's kind of a famous writer now, Anand Jiridharadas, who's saying that the Aspen consensus is that by all means, these companies will do good and they'll advertise the good things that they're doing. They're the good corporate citizens. But don't you dare ever tell these companies to do less harm. So it's great that Chevron is was until recently at least trying to turn algae into biofuels. And it's great that ExxonMobil is talking about carbon capture storage, CCS, ad nauseum. But you tell them to shut down a few refineries, you tell them to reduce the amount of oil that they refine, that's a different story. That's crossing the Rubicon. And that's kind of this getting back to that whole neoliberal kind of mindset that McKinsey's a champion of. So on the one hand, McKinsey's sustainability people presenting a cogent case for immediate climate action. On the other hand, McKinsey is working with the biggest carbon emitters in the world. And that would be fine if they were working with them to reduce their carbon footprints, to reduce their carbon emissions. But in many cases, that's just not true. They're working with them to increase their profit, to increase their efficiency, and efficiency by means of being able to get more fossil fuels out of the ground more profitably and efficiently. And we have numerous examples in that chapter. So I have to mention here, Anand was a guest on the podcast too, and talked about Winners Take All, his book, and wonderful book that really changed a lot of my thoughts on things. And so you talked about Dick and Pinner's presentation. Was that a video? Have you seen it? Or did you only hear about it? Or did you talk to him? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, we have it. It's on video. You can find it on YouTube still. Okay. Yeah, it's definitely out there. Yeah, so you can watch it yourself. He's interviewed by this uh, FT, you know, very prominent FT journalist. And so, yeah, you can see it for yourself. Okay, so that was Jillian or Gillian. I'm not sure how to say it. Yeah, Jillian Ted. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, because you described his reactions of what it was like, how can someone just do this no and then walk away or something like that? Could you describe that reaction that they had, that he had? Well, what was quite interesting is that after giving this incredibly cogent presentation, the obviously the, the logical questions after that were, well, what can we do about it? What do we do, Mr. Pinner? And that's kind of where you kind of get the idea that, well, he's really good at talking about the problem, but when it comes to advocating solutions, he's not you know, they don't take a policy position. So so what Pinner said in response to Jillian Tett was, and let's see, I'm just, I've got the book right here. So she asked, have you tried to take this to Washington? Have you tried to take it to the White House? And his answer, which is a very common answer at McKinsey, is I think from our point of view, we really don't have a role to play on the policy side, he said. Where we think we can add value is by converting the science into numbers that expose the risk and put them in a form that decision makers can make decisions. And so you see this theme throughout the book too, that McKinsey doesn't involve itself in policy. They are banned. They ban themselves from lobbying. And uh, one of the quotes we have from the chapter on their work with ICE, you know, immigration customs enforcement, uh, one of their senior partners said, you know, we do execution, not policy. They say the same thing about their work in Saudi Arabia. It's just that oftentimes their work and the results of their work 
are intensely political. So they're kind of having their cake and eating it at the same time. They're delving into issues with their clients that have very political outcomes. And yet they like to say, we don't get involved with policy. We don't advocate political positions one way or another. So now I apologize if I said he about Jillian, if it's a she. Oops, sorry about that. Now, you then spoke about, I think Eric Edstrom was the big one, Mark Shahinian, that they were not partners. I don't think they were partners. And they were, they felt differently. I mean, they did different things. I, could you share what Eric did? And did you get to talk to him a lot? Yeah, I mean, I think Eric is a very amazing person. He was a West Point graduate. I think he scored the top score on the physical fitness test at West Point. Not only that, he was like the top athlete almost when it came to the physical fitness test at West Point. He was a platoon leader in Afghanistan, in the army. So he had this incredible life, rich life experience going into McKinsey. And before he went into McKinsey, he got a master's at Oxford focusing on environment. He was very committed to trying to find ways to, you know, reduce the world's carbon footprint. I think he was very moved by Al Gore's movie from back in 2006 about rising carbon emissions. So he's an extremely idealistic person, extremely well-educated, went to work in Australia for a while. I think he was at BCG for a while, but then started working in Melbourne as an associate at McKinsey. By associate, so you have ranks in consulting companies, not just McKinsey, business analysts being the lowest rank. And those are people who are right fresh out of undergraduate school and are putting together slide presentations and doing the grunt work. The next level up are the people who have their MBAs or master's degrees are associates. And then you get into the what I call the sergeants, who are the engagement managers, and then the officer class being the partners and senior partners. So he was an associate. He went to work in Australia for McKinsey, American, but he was in Australia. And he realized there that a lot of the consultant companies that bread and butter in a very resource-focused country like Australia was the big mining companies like BHP, Rio Tinto, who have been McKinsey clients for decades and decades and decades. And they did a lot of coal work as well, a lot of coal mining. That was a, a big business in Australia, and Australia still is. And uh, that bothered him. And he's not afraid to speak his mind. Uh, was so outspoken, which is not typical of McKinsey consultants, and eventually did leave the firm you know, from Australia, but not before writing the mother of all like goodbye emails. You know, goodbye emails are very common at uh, lots of companies. You know, I'm leaving. I really loved my time at, the, at company A. And boy, I really just value all the friendships that I forged at company A. And I'll never forget you. Your typical form letter goodbye email. But his was a real blast at McKinsey's work and the contradictions between McKinsey's values and values are a very big deal at McKinsey and its commitment to sustainability and then the work it does with coal mining companies. And he did this in a very analytical way. He talked about how McKinsey at that time was touting its success and they did it in a company video, which unfortunately I do not have, but this company official was talking about, and it was a coal mining company in Asia, talking about how, boy, you know, McKinsey helped boost their profitability and productivity. And Edstrom went in there and figured that McKinsey consultants, each of them 
at this working at this coal company, each of them were responsible for megatons of carbon being emitted into the atmosphere, given their effectiveness at working at this coal company. It was very powerful stuff. He hit send. It spread like wildfire uh, across the firm. And you'll see in our book several times where some of our the people we've talked to did these kind of blast emails that spread like wildfire across the firm. So he definitely went out with a blast, a literal an email blast. And the reaction, I mean, it sounds like my read was that the higher level up they were, the more they were like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, but we got to keep doing what we're doing because it's ultimately better for everyone in the long run. And the lower, and as you go lower down, it was more of, thank you for saying that. And is that an accurate read? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Once you've become a partner at McKinsey, you kind of have the golden handcuffs on. And not only are you making a lot of money, but you're probably spending a lot more money too. And you've got your big house, your vacation house, your kids in private school, all these things. And so those aren't the people who are usually the flame, you know, the flamethrowers, cobblestone throwers, the people at the barricades, right? And so it was the younger people. And I have to say, you know, we were talking at the beginning of this podcast about how the world is different. And I do think that young McKinsey consultants these days are different from people. So I'm a child of the 80s. I went to college during the Reagan administration. I think it was a much more cynical time then. And now I do think in general, there is a lot more idealism among young people and McKinsey appeals to that and they're recruiting and sometimes they reap what they sow. And so if you're going to recruit idealistic people or appeal to their idealism to get them to come to McKinsey and not to Goldman Sachs, then sometimes you have to pay the price. And the price is these people get upset when they see the company doing things that go against their ideals, such as working with coal companies, working with tobacco companies, working with opioid makers, you know, that this just doesn't sit well with them at all. And not only that, but they speak out. All right, now it's my turn to, you earlier said, pre prefaced using a, a particular word with explaining why and hoping that you wouldn't be misunderstood. So when you describe people who they have, you said golden handcuffs. And I don't mean the following word as a negative, but just a description that, is it fair to say that their situation has corrupted them? And I don't mean corruption like people in the back room twirling their mustaches, making shady deals. I just mean like they got rusty, something like that. And if so, are the idealists, the young idealists hires on the path to the same, are they heading down a similar path? Yeah, I would say in this case, it's certainly not unique to McKinsey that the more senior you get, the more invested you are in the status quo. And the more naive and even foolish it seems for people to be acting on their ideals. I've certainly had that experience working for my previous employer. It's very common to run into that wall of the silverbacks of the world studying you and saying, you're so foolish, just grow up and go along. You know, we're here to make money. This is capitalism. Just behave. It's a really hard question to answer whether the young cohort at McKinsey now will follow the way of their predecessors. I'm sure some of them will. 
one of a very, very smart former McKinsey consultant kind of gave me a typology of your typical McKinsey consultants. And so of the, all the, you know, m- most people who go into McKinsey don't stay there. And this is by design. Most of them, many of them are what you're called managed out. So they don't make the cut and they are very humanely kind of told to leave. We'll help you find another job. And you know what? Because you got recruited by McKinsey, because you've had all this experience, this crash course in business management and business consulting, you're going to land really well. And almost invariably, they do. And so there's this typologies of all the people who go in as associates and businessmen analysts, the top 25%, the smartest of the smart, they leave, they go on to do something extraordinary, start a company, you know, what are they recruited by somebody else? The bottom 25% are definitely managed out, actually the bottom half managed out, they go on. It's the second quartile, the 50% to 75%, that quartile, they're the ones who stay become the engagement managers, the sergeants, and then the partners and the senior partners. And they're not the most outstanding, but they're certainly standout performers. And there's a term that is used at McKinsey and not with shame, but openly, and they call themselves insecure overachievers. And I think this kind of gets back to that whole meritocracy thing that these people were valedictorians of their high school class. They went to top-notch colleges. Their parents and grandparents are so proud of them. So they want to come to a place that of employment that is just as prestigious as where they came from. We talked about this earlier. And I think the insecure overachievers are extremely well represented in that second quartile, the people who stay. And you can see, to close the circle here, Josh, you can see how those would be the people who would buy into the system. They would be the type of people who would be okay with McKinsey working with all these companies that are so controversial. So this paints a picture of something beyond just McKinsey because you're talking about a system that McKinsey is part of and the top law firms and the top finance firms, they're going to be very similar, which tells me you're talking about a big part of, I'm not sure if I'm using the right word here, but leadership of our country and leadership of the system it's in this regard, the book seems a lot bigger than just McKinsey. Yeah. And there's a lot of scrutiny of law firms now and accounting firms. So these professional services firms, and I think exemplified by the law firms, the accounting firms, and the consulting firms. I think the difference is that you're required by law to have, everybody needs a lawyer. If you're going to be having any sort of legal conflict, whether civil or criminal, you need a lawyer, right? Every company needs an accountant, but a management consultant, that is totally voluntary. So it's icky and gross sometimes when law firms are representing tyrants, when they're representing Russian oligarchs, all this stuff. And it's very distasteful. And a lot of times they do it just for the bucks, you know, not because of lofty legal principles. But at least they can say in the end, well, this person needed a lawyer and we are a lawyer. You know, McKinsey and its cohorts, Boston Consulting Group and Bain, those are the three big management consulting companies, can't say that. They can't say, well, we had to do this work with Purdue Pharma. It's like there is no right and there is no need or no like legal need for a management consultancy. So everything McKinsey does is completely voluntary. 
in the sense that they choose to do their work with Purdue Pharma. They choose to do their work that they stopped a couple of years ago with Philip Morris, Altria. They choose to do their work with the government of Saudi Arabia and with Chinese state-owned enterprises. That's all voluntary. So there's a little bit of a difference there. And, you know, I still am a little bit leery of these massive condemnations of American capitalism. Obviously, in many ways, it's worked very well over the centuries, but certainly, especially when you're looking at sustainability and the overwhelming need for us to stop emitting CO2, the weaknesses of our system really come to focus. And McKinsey is very much a part of that system. So voluntariness, yeah, it's yeah, some lawyers got to represent, I don't know, pick a defendant that Weinstein or people like that. They, they need a defendant and that makes sense. But yeah, you don't need a consultant. And yeah, did you get to talk to Dominic Barton, who was a guest on this podcast? And I hadn't, I didn't know the background that your book and articles said about him. It sounds like you talk to people at tech, but it sounds like just like the PR people. Yeah. So when we talked to Dominic Barton, it would have been in the spring of 2018 when he was still the managing partner at McKinsey. And we came, Walton, this was before we ever published an article about McKinsey. This was the, we were getting ready to publish the South Africa story. And so he was in his last couple months being managing partner of McKinsey struck me and he strikes so many people it's extremely he's canadian and it shows very polite very smooth extremely well spoken obviously a first rate mind kind of guy very typical and he's a road scholar like so many mckinsey people are i started making a spreadsheet of mckinsey road scholars and i had to stop it just got so big so he was a road scholar the current managing partner of McKinsey is also a Rhodes Scholar, and he had answers for everything and the questions we asked. And honestly, I think at that point of our reporting, we probably weren't asking the right questions. We were still learning so much, and so much was still in the future. We didn't know at the time about McKinsey's work with Purdue Pharma. Of course, Dominic Barton himself, so this, this work with Purdue Pharma and their work to turbocharge opioid sales. That all occurred during his watch as managing partner. He was there as a top guy for nine years. But even he said in, in, in subsequent that he wasn't aware of the nature of the work going on uh, with Purdue Pharma. And he's been in front of hearings in Parliament in Ottawa recently because he became ambassador to China. There's a lot of scrutiny on him. And some people may not believe that, but actually it's quite believable given McKinsey's system. It's not like he's the CEO He's a managing partner. He, I think it was him, and, and forgive me if I'm misquoting him, but he kind of described being head of McKinsey, managing partner of McKinsey as herding cats because it is a decentralized system with such powerful, like they used to call them barons almost, uh, barons in certain areas around the world, in certain practice areas like insurance, for example, or banking, that it's very strong independent partners in that area that it's hard to control them. And you're kind of more there for moral suasion and big picture guidance rather than you don't have the same authority as a CEO of like, say, Coca-Cola saying, we will do this, we will do that. It doesn't work that way at McKinsey. So this is a very long-winded way of answering your question, but we found him very affable, very polished and poised. And yet so many of the problems we wrote about in the book 
festered during his nine years from 2009 to 2018 as managing partner. And I will add, Josh, just months after he left McKinsey, he was the chairman of Tech Resources. Tech Resources, to your listeners, is a coal mining company in Canada. They mine coal generally for steel mills. So it's metallurgical coal is what it is. And one of the ways they do that is by blasting mountains in the Canadian Rockies to smithereens and extracting the coal that way. That's what they do for McKinsey, a company that talks about its green credentials to go be the chairman of a company like that right after working at McKinsey. That's a choice he made. So it says a lot, I think. And then I think... I don't remember if this was in the book or one of the interviews I saw of yours. It wasn't just him that went to to tech from McKinsey. It didn't like it was not then afterward tech filled with McKinsey people. That's right. So Walt and I were very fortunate to get a lot of access to some internal documents at McKinsey, which describe their work with all their clients. And it was pretty clear from those documents that the work with tech resources really exploded with Dominic Barton, Barton's arrival there. And we had some visibility into to this kind of work. Like, it's not like they were working to reduce tech's carbon footprint. Some of these jobs they were doing, these what they call engagements, were coal processing optimization. One was called drill and blast. I would love to know more details about drill and blast. I never got exactly what drill and blast was, but you could kind of get an idea of <laughs> yeah, what <it's... laughs> drill and blast might entail. So it's this not planting is, trees. Yeah, this is the kind of work McKinsey's doing. At the same time, they're talking about Dick and Pinner. I mean, really almost exact same time Dick and Pinner at the Aspen Ideals Festival is presenting this incredibly scary case of about scenario about where the world is heading. And if we don't reduce our carbon emissions right now, we're going to run right over that 1.5 degree Celsius limit. So you have Dick and Pinner in Aspen saying this. You have Dominic Barton and up in Vancouver, where tech is based, doing something completely different. And with all his, he's no longer at McKinsey at this point, but he's bringing all these McKinsey consultants into the company. Part of the time when I was reading the book, I was thinking how at a law firm, I'm sure there are going to be some partners who are doing work at the DA's office and some who are defending I thought, well, some partners can work on one client and some partners can work at another client, which have conflicting in a law firm. I would think that. and But that's not the case here. I mean, what you just described is it's in conflict with its own values, it feels. I mean, to say nothing of the Sacklers and FDA, is there a case to be said, like the partners are really doing independent work and the walls that they set up in between are effective? Is that... I can see that case, but your book makes it impossible for me to think that that's actually can happen. I mean, the people know each other and the firm, even if there's no CEO, it's not completely independent fiefdoms. So it's certainly a lot bigger, way, way bigger than it used to be. A lot of the old timers we talked to kind of lamented the fact that it used to be that all the senior partners knew each other and they had big meetings every year or so, usually in a very nice place. And so they got to know them not only as co-workers, but sometimes as friends as well. So everybody knew each other. That's certainly not the case now with the firm being as big as they are with 
with literally thousands of partners and senior partners. And so, but, and yet it's those partners and senior partners that are kind of the glue that holds it all together. And of course, you know, they have visibility into some of the work that others are doing that an associate or an engagement manager wouldn't have. And sometimes those firewalls, and they're proud of talking about their firewalls. I think one example I heard once was in the Melbourne office in Australia, that the people who were working for Rio Tinto, which is one mining company, and the people working for BHP, which is their blood rival other mining company, and McKinsey was doing work for them at the same time. But the, you know, the, the BHP people, their card wouldn't get them into the Rio Tinto side of the office at McKinsey, where the Rio Tinto people were working, and vice versa, that they tried to keep literal walls between their teams. And time and time again, McKinsey talks about these firewalls that they have. And yet, after our book was published, or actually, it's not after the book was published, it was after we had already kind of put our pencils down on the book. We got access to an incredible amount of documents that were pertaining to McKinsey and its work with Purdue Pharma. This was a result of a lawsuit that state attorneys generals around the country led by the now governor of Massachusetts, Maura Healy, started as they looked into Purdue Pharma. And in early 2021, McKinsey agreed to pay more than $600 million to settle these investigations that these state attorney generals are doing into McKinsey's work with opioid makers, not just Purdue Pharma, but other opioid makers as well. So McKinsey in that admitted no wrongdoing but who really pays $600 million when they didn't do anything wrong? But anyway, I'm not a lawyer. I don't play one on TV. <laughs> but in any case, gosh, I don't know where I was going with this. But McKinsey paid these fines. And as part of that settlement, yeah, part of that settlement was an agreement to make documents public. This is very akin to the tobacco industry settlements in previous decades, where the tobacco companies as part of their settlements with the government also agreed to make public decades of documents. And they did. And these are managed by a consortium of universities in the United States, uh, University of California, San Francisco being one of them. And we got access to these documents early last year, early 2022. And they were really, really fascinating. And one of the, and it showed how some of the same people who are working for the opioid makers at McKinsey also had been or would work for the Food and Drug Administration, which has obviously oversight over pharmaceutical makers. And another thing it showed is that there was one specific senior partner at McKinsey, who is both the top senior partner for its work with Purdue Pharma, and also at the same time was a senior partner working for one of Purdue Pharma's rivals, Endo Pharmaceuticals, which McKinsey was working on an opioid-related project. And so it's like, well, wait a minute. How can there be a firewall when one guy is working for two different opioid makers at the same time? This was right in, I mean, we had the billing information. It was all right there that the invoices he was, the hours he was billing for both companies. Man, it's so much to process here. I want to go in a direction of, I'm, you might not be able to comment much on this, but talking about all the Rhodes Scholars, couldn't, I mentioned it before we started recording that the book, or one of the books I'd had just before, uh, that I'd read just before this was King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hochschild, and he's been on the podcast. And it talks about 
King Leopold of Belgium getting the Congo and just under the guise of getting rid of the Arab slave trade, introduced whole levels of slavery and colonialism and slavery and imperialism on a scale, like tragic. And then it's funny because as you mentioned all the Rhodes scholars, I'm thinking, oh, that's Cecil Rhodes. That's Rhodes, Rhodesia Rhodes of also imperialists. And I couldn't help but see these parallels where it's not maybe nation-based imperialism, but maybe corporate, it's something, there seems to be a very, very big, big differences between McKinsey and King Leopold or Cecil Rhodes, but something similar as well about this reputation that appears sterling when scratched beneath the surface and there seems something the opposite and a decentralization that allows people to do things with a bit of plausible deniability. Something seemed very similar there. There's some systemic continuation of something that was happening before and is happening now but where it was a monarch before its uh, partnership today. Am I seeing a pattern that's not there or is there something there? You know, I mean, I think we should be careful. I, I mean, first of all, in the course of reporting this, Walt and I met so many people at McKinsey, a lot of them we really liked. I think you kind of get that idea just through the course of this interview. There, We made good friends there. I think there's a lot of very good people at McKinsey. But, you know, as with some other companies, sometimes the system, pushes it, the company to do things that in retrospect were probably big mistakes. And they've admitted that they should never have done this work with Purdue Pharma, for example. And it's, you know, I want to be very careful saying this. This is not me saying this, but there are people, you know, at McKinsey who talk, you know, who people who've talked to us trying to describe what it is. And sometimes you just lose sight of the forest for the trees. You know, it's a very human thing. I don't, I'm not making excuses for McKinsey's work at Purdue Pharma, for example, but try to understand what was going on. They were working so hard at this company. They were so focused on it. They were so focused on getting new client, new client money, new jobs at Purdue Pharma to help them improve their profitability that they lost sight of the bigger picture, which was this company makes drugs that are addictive, that are fomenting an opioid crisis in the United States where there wasn't one before. And by 2013, when the turbocharge campaign, when McKinsey said, we need to turbocharge your OxyContin sales, there was no secret about this by then. Everybody knew this. And there, there had been lawsuits. There had already, Purdue had already been the focus of major federal litigation at that point over their work with OxyContin. And so yet McKinsey continued to do this work. It's sometimes it's, Decent people or people who are not bad, just losing sight of the big picture. And I, I'm not a psychologist, Josh. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not making excuses for these people. I'm just trying to understand how this could have happened. And you can see how human nature would lead to these kind of outcomes sometimes. I've heard you describe in other places how the, I think one of your goals is to create more transparency, especially for outside regulation. But from what you're saying now, of which there's very little, and but what you're saying now, I think maybe this book is part of it, partly a wake-up call for people within McKinsey, but also if there's a system that's broken that's leading people in directions they don't want to go, that is it giving them ammunition or and grounds to change that system? 
their own system? Yeah, I mean, so in fairness to McKinsey, they have changed a bit since we started reporting. And since all these huge issues have come to light, they say they have a new system for evaluating work with new clients or new work with old clients. And they look at more issues and more impacts, you know, like, hey, is is this ethical? Does this go with, you know, is there a political problem with this? Is there an ethical issue? They say they do that. They've stopped working with opioid makers. They've stopped working with tobacco companies in the last couple of years. They've stopped working with vaping companies. They say they don't work with the justice ministry, the interior ministries, or the defense ministries of authoritarian states anymore. So they've done all these things. They say they have. And yet, since we've published our book, McKinsey continues to make some headlines that are not good. One of the, our colleagues, some of our colleagues at the Times a few months ago, wrote about their work with a so-called nonprofit hospital chain in the United States uh, and McKinsey's work to help them extract money from poor people who weren't, in some cases, even obligated to actually pay their bills or to be charged for some services. But McKinsey devised a system, kind of rubrics for phone conversations and such, to pressure some of these low-income people to pay up, even though some, in some cases they weren't even obligated to pay. This kind of work keeps going on. So despite all these changes at McKinsey, they're still doing this kind of work. They you know, also were working with the Saudis for this, this LIV golf plan that they have, to, which is part of the Saudi Arabia's campaign to repair their public image after they murdered the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. So I'm not a cynical person, really, but I do think it's a hard system to change. So in my podcast, I, one of my goals is to bring people like you on and bring messages that I think are important for people to learn. Another thing is I want to work with places, especially polluters, to help them change themselves. And am I... What do you think the potential is for me to work with people at McKinsey, both to help them if they're interested to help change McKinsey, and also because of McKinsey's influence to help McKinsey change these other places? And before you answer, we talked before and you pointed to when you wrote an article, they preempted or they got printed, I think the managing director, Sneeder, if I remember right wrote how we have to work with the polluters if we want to do anything about them. But they don't say we have to work with the tobacco companies if we want to change them. We don't work with the... They didn't say we have to work more with Purdue Pharma. They said we have to get out of there. So I guess that was two questions. One is, do you think there's a potential to help McKinsey people change McKinsey with help from the outside, me? And can that then help McKinsey change the world? And should they disengage with polluting industries or continue to engage with polluting industries as they've disengaged with, say, Purdue Pharma? Yeah. And so, as you know, reading that article, which we published in October 2021, and it was kind of a preview to our chapter on sustainability in the book, that there's a lot of very idealistic people at McKinsey who sent an open letter to the then managing partner of McKinsey, Kevin Sneeder, and the, some other top McKinsey people saying, we need to be a lot more transparent about our work with these big polluters. They didn't say in the letter, we need to stop working with these people outright. They were much more nuanced than that. But 
but they said they, you know, we need to be very open about the work we do with these companies and the carbon footprints that our, these clients have. But because of the secrecy of McKinsey, and we really haven't talked about that too much in this podcast, but McKinsey is a very secretive company. Their work with these companies is confidential. It's preserving client competences is a time-honored value at McKinsey, you know, much like a law firm would preserve confidences of a client. So they like to think of themselves, they're purposely modeled like a law firm. And so, but there's all these idealistic people there. They wrote this open letter. So obviously there's a lot of people there, Josh, who would be very open to anything, ideas you might have on how they could do more work to promote sustainability at McKinsey. And you're absolutely right. It's one thing to get out of tobacco and opioid work, right? That work actually is not central to McKinsey's revenue stream. But some of the oil companies, such as Chevron, British Petroleum, BP, are among the biggest clients of McKinsey. So now we're talking about real money. And this is where you get back into what Anand Jirid Haradas talked about, that, that Aspen mindset, which is it's fine for McKinsey to talk about sustainability. It's fine them, for them to put together PowerPoint presentations saying, this is what we need to do to reduce world's carbon footprint. But when you ask McKinsey to stop working with BP, to stop working with Chevron, then you're affecting tens of millions, if not more, of McKinsey's revenue stream. And that's where you get the resistance. And that's where you get, and it wasn't Kevin Sneeder, it's the new guy, Bob Sternfels, who wrote that prebuttal to our article in October 2021, saying, first, we, we've got to work with these polluters because they're the ones, you know, if we're not there, if we don't have a seat at the table, then we're never going to be able to help them reduce their carbon footprint, which sounds really good, except when you look at some of the work McKinsey's doing with these companies, which has nothing to do with that. And you're absolutely right. That's a contradiction there. It's like, they're fine stopping work with tobacco. They're fine stopping work with opioid, or at least they do that after these articles come out about their work with those industries. But they draw the line with ExxonMobil, with Chevron, with BP, with Aramco. It's quite telling, isn't it? Yeah. It reminds me of a guest I had who worked for Exxon for a long time. He was recruited to help lower Exxon's impact. And he was there for a long time and they kept not giving him the chance to do it. And finally, he just said to his manager, we know the problems. We keep saying we're going to reduce, but we're not reducing. And the guy said, yes, Exxon believes the total emission should reduce, but of that reduction, Exxon's share should be larger. And that's just a systemic situation that's yeah. abdication to me. Right. And just if you've been reading the headlines, and I'm sure you have in recent weeks, you know, about some of these big oil majors walking back some of their commitments to decarbonization, you know, is Exxon ever going to get on board? Is Chevron ever going to get on board with this? A BP and Shell, we're talking a good game. They're not American companies. They're Europeans. So there's in many ways, Europe is more farther along with decarbonization in many ways than in the United States, especially Western Europe. And so they're products of that system in the EU and or in Europe. And they were saying a lot of good things. How sincere are they, those companies now? And the American companies have been far more recalcitrant, it seems, than the European companies. And even the European companies are, I think, was, if I'm not right, and I, I don't, you know, I need to be careful here, but 
I think I saw some headlines recently about some pressure the show is getting for walking back a little on some of its commitments. Was that, was that right? Did they see something on that? Anyway, I don't want to get over my skis there and say something that's not true. But is working with the big oil majors really going to help them become more sustainable when they don't seem to be interested in that at all? Is a tobacco company ever really, really going to be keen on having people stop smoking? Man, this is where I feel like now we're just scratching. I feel like everything so far has been the overview. And now I really want to get into the details. And I would love to keep the conversation going, but I don't want to keep you past. Is there anything to close with to wrap for top level messages or something for the listeners? I don't know. I mean, I think the way we ended it with this just now with these oil companies and McKinsey's work with oil companies and the coal companies was, it kind of says a lot. I think we really got deep down in there, Josh. Yeah, I want to thank you very much, both for the conversation and for the book and the articles when McKinsey comes to town. Michael Forsyth, thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Josh. It was a pleasure. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.